Now this morning, we approach a very difficult topic. The topic of death. Death may be one of the hardest things in life that we will ever deal with. Certainly if you've experienced the loss of a loved one. It's not easy. We can sing, we can read the scriptures, and we must, because that's our reality, but it's not easy. Many will often ask in the world, what will happen to someone after death? For such a common occurrence that death affects all of the human race, there is so much ignorance on this topic. There's so much misinformation and misunderstanding that leads to faulty conclusions about death, most importantly, life after death. Ask the question in this day and age. Go out in the street when you do your evangelism. Say, what happens to a person after they die? You'll get a variety of answers, but believe it or not, most people do believe in some form of afterlife. But the Bible gives us the answer to that question. And that's what we go to. For all matters of life and all matters of death. In today's text, Paul will address a situation in this congregation as they were uninformed about what happened to these loved ones that died. What would happen to believers, those in Christ in this congregation, and throughout the world for that matter, who died before Jesus' return. You have to understand that death is different for a Christian. For a Christian, there must be clarity. There must be understanding at this topic. There is actually a reason to rejoice. There is actually a reason for hope for a Christian that the world does not have. Let's read our text. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. I'm going to break this down. If you're taking notes, verse 13, the heading is, Being uninformed about death can bring a misappropriate sense of grief to a Christian. Verses 14 to 17, the second heading, being correctly informed about death ought to bring hope to a Christian. And verse 18, God's word brings truth 
God's word brings comfort to a Christian regarding this topic of death. Now, being uninformed about death can bring a misappropriated sense of grief. Now, in Thessalonica, the people of God were living with an expectancy of the second coming of Jesus Christ. In First and Second Thessalonians, this is the author's intent, the second coming of Christ. In the first five chapters, in the first epistle, every chapter ends with a reference of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And here was what the problem was. They thought that those who died would have missed this great event. See, they did not have a correct understanding of what happens to a Christian when they depart from this earth due to death. Now let's read verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve, as do the rest who have no hope. It is important for the Christian to have a biblical understanding of death. Because a Christian ought not to have the same reaction as those who have no hope. Now the text makes distinctions here. There is the brethren who are in Christ, and then there are those who have no hope. It's the same distinction that the New Testament makes about a person either being in Christ or being in Adam. There are only two categories a person can be in. And depending upon where that person is, the reaction towards this topic of death is either hope for those in Christ or hopelessness for those in Adam's. Now, the loss of a loved one may bring grief regardless, and it is not wrong for a Christian to experience grief. There is a category of good grief in Ecclesiastes 3.4. There is a time for us to mourn. For all to mourn. Grieving was very natural when the death of a loved one, even in Christ, occurs. Jesus wept over Lazarus. And grief is a very powerful emotion. And grief, like other emotions, can cloud our judgment and blur out our perspective for God's promises and the Word of God and God's truth for His people. This along with an incorrect understanding of death can bring me and you a misappropriated sense of grief. And Paul's going to set the record straight and clarify. He's going to say, he goes on to write, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, those in Christ, about those who are asleep. Now we see this word, asleep. This is a euphemism. We see it in much writing, even pagan writing, even in the Old Testament. It's basically a metaphor for death. This is not to be confused with soul sleep. We had a conversation about this last week in Sunday school. What is soul sleep? The idea that the soul exists in a non-conscious state of sleeping between death and the resurrection. This is misinformation. And many are waiting to be resurrected, but they're sleeping now. They're not conscious. No, the New Testament is clear that all whether they be in Christ or Adam, are very conscious in what is known as the intermediate state. 
Now, sleep, even Jesus used this term. Jesus used this term speaking of Lazarus in John 11, verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. So sleep is a scriptural metaphor for death. But still many have a misunderstanding about this category called death. We, many of us have grown up and we may have said Jesus is Lord, but have believed an unbiblical doctrine like the doctrine of purgatory. A resting place in the intermediate state where people can kind of get things sorted out, where you can get a second chance. No, the Bible's clear. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. Hebrews 9, 27. This doctrine comes from a non-canical book, the Apocrypha. And in the Middle Ages, it picked up a lot of momentum. And the Reformers denounced this. And still many today believe in this unbiblical doctrine. This doctrine was very good for business, by the way. Uh, it promised remission for sins by the selling of indulgences. Another faulty view is annihilationism, where people just cease to exist, and that is incorrect. So the dead in Christ who had departed in this epistle, where were they? Well, they were not in purgatory. They were in the presence of the Lord. How do we know that? Paul tells us on two occasions. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, I say and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Paul didn't know what was better. I mean, he wanted to depart to be with the Lord, but he knew he had work to do. And he further elaborated on this in Philippians. Consider what he says in Philippians 1, 21 to 23. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh... This will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is much better. They were in the presence of the Lord, these people. And what did Jesus tell a repentant thief? He said, take a nap. I'll be back for you in a thousand years. Don't pay the mortgage. We'll be back, right? No, he said, today... Today you will be with me in paradise. So, those in Christ means when you die, you will be in the presence of the Lord immediately. Praise the Lord for that. Though the body remains on the earth, the soul is in the presence in a conscious state. Now, looking at the end of the verse... Paul makes the distinction. So you do not grieve as those who have no hope. Paul makes the record, set the record straight. Those, the vast majority of mankind, have no hope when it comes to this biblical topic of death. It's interesting, I was reading a Gallup poll 
May 15, 2017, 24% of America, almost five years ago, did not believe the Bible was the literal word of God. Therefore, this is where the confusion comes from. Paul makes the distinction, like the rest, those in Adam. Why did they have no hope? Because they will incur what is known as the second death, eternal death. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that there will be judgment. Now, many who have no hope are deceived in our culture in thinking that they do have hope. They don't even realize. And consequently, many have a false hope to think that somehow they will make it into this place with God, this place in heaven, without the righteousness of Christ, oblivious to what happens after death, not understanding, and they will proclaim, yeah, Jesus, yeah, Jesus is, I like Jesus. Jesus spoke more in the New Testament about hell than anyone else. Many have no hope, and they are deceived. Without the righteousness of God, you will not be in the presence of Lord. And it's only by grace that we have that. I remember seeing a, a, a tweet about uh, guitarist Eddie Van Halen, who passed away a couple of months ago. And the tweet was along the lines of, Eddie's now jamming with Jimi Hendrix and is a rock and roll jam session in heaven. The foolishness, the ignorance, and the misunderstanding of so many to think that that would take place in heaven. Now, I don't know the heart of and state of Eddie Van Halen. I hope he was with the Lord. But there's many who you will see in social media when someone has someone anti, their father, their sister, happy birthday to so-and-so in heaven, understanding that this person rejected Jesus Christ their entire life. And somehow, foolishly deceived, having this false hope that they're in heaven. No. So having a proper understanding of death is essential, certainly for the Christian. Now we look at the second point, what Jesus Christ accomplished. Being correctly informed, and that is what we are to be, those in Christ, about death ought to bring hope to a Christian. You may grieve, but you ought to have hope. And now we're going to see reasons for hope in verses 14 to 17. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us, in Christ, hope. For we believe, we ought to believe. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 8, 500 witnesses. We see in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if we don't believe in the resurrection, our belief, our faith is in vain. Even Josephus, a secular Jewish historian in Antiquities, book chapter 18, verse 3, speaks about the resurrection. Because of the resurrection of Christ, Jesus' resurrection guarantees a future resurrection and eternal fellowship with God. When He returns, something is going to happen to you. You're going to have a resurrection. A bodily resurrection. When we were looking at Ephesians chapter 2, we saw that there is a spiritual resurrection. We've been raised 
seated with Christ in a spiritual realm. But there will be a physical resurrection. The resurrection of believers. Jesus had much to say about the resurrection of the last day, which does include believers and non-believers. Let's consider Jesus' words in John 6.40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. On the last day. Don't miss that. John 6.54. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now our hope Resurrection comes from Christ. And many believed in the last day resurrection. Look at Lazarus' sister Martha. Even the religious group, the Pharisees. I want to read you uh, John 11. Let's consider Jesus' words to the question. uh, To what Martha had falsely thought. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he, he will rise Again, in the resurrection on the last day. She's correct there. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies or she dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Will never die. Reason for hope. Do you believe this? And she said, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. So because he lives, because of his resurrection, we will live. Now Martha had a good understanding of this, and we ought to have a good understanding. But I would argue there's one resurrection in the last day. Now this was not just taught about Jesus. This was taught in Daniel, the Old Testament prophet. Chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Even Isaiah referenced this. But let's talk Daniel. What did Daniel say about the last resurrection? Some will awake from the earth, and some will have everlasting life and others shame. Again, you're in Christ or you're in Adam. In Christ, hope. In Adam, hopelessness. Isaiah said, your dead will live, their bodies will rise. So the resurrection is, a, is something that the prophets, the last day resurrection, prophesied. And something certainly Jesus spoke about, and even Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15.21, Since death came through one man, that is Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus, the resurrection and the life. But today's text speaks specifically about those in Christ and their reason for hope. Let's look at the end of verse 14. He will bring with them those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. Those who have physically departed will come back with the Lord. And where are they now? They're in the presence of the Lord. That is what's known as the intermediate state. Now, Paul is affirming divine revelation given to him. This is not speculation. This is not, okay, they'll be okay, we'll see them again. This is the word of God that Paul is giving us here. 
The word of the Lord is a reason to be hopeful. Now the resurrection is tied to the coming of the Lord. Let's look at verse 15. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, not speculation, the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Those who have departed. Those who we have lost in this congregation. We ought not to be grieving as those who have no hope. They will come back with the Lord. And those who remain will be with Christ as well. At the com- What coming is this? Is this the second coming? Is this a first of two comings? What coming is this? More on that as we go. Coming of the Lord, there is a coming. And Paul is speaking about, as I told you, every chapter in 1 Thessalonians. He continues in 2 Thessalonians, speaking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. Is this a secret coming? A seven-year, a secret coming, a rapture of the church before or after a seven-year tribulation on earth? Well, there is no mention of this whatsoever in this text. There is no mention of it in 2 Thessalonians. And I believe the passage we spoke about this morning and we read in chapter 5 as well is all tied to this. Now... Paul will continue to give details about this coming in chapter 5 as we read. And I believe it is the same event. But is there a separation in chapter 4? Now stay with me. Verse 13 to 18. Is there a separation of a thousand years and then we go into chapter 5? Verses 1 to 11? I don't think so. Why even ask these questions? The text does not relate to this whatsoever. And the reason I ask it is because we've been indoctrinated with an end-time view called dispensationalism. And so much has been imposed on this passage. Now, I've spoken to the elders about this, and I'll tell you more as to why I'm even bringing this up. But we have to understand what the text tells us. And we have to look at the text and draw out of the text More on that in a little while. But let's not forget, again, what precedes this text, what is before, what is after. What is the context? What is the context in this book? The second coming of Jesus Christ. Am I off on this? It's the second coming of Jesus Christ. The historical, grammatical, or theorial intent is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, chapter 5 speaks about the day of the Lord. And I believe this is tied in, but we know when he comes back, he will bring those who have departed back, more on where they're going at another time. But even those who are alive will be affected by his second coming. So let's look at what the second coming will be like. Verses 16 and 17. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will remain, 
and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Okay, let's evaluate these verses. Just, just, just evaluate what's there. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Where is the Lord? He's in heaven. Where are the Lord's people? They're in heaven with him as well. He will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead will rise first. Praise the Lord. Is this secret? Is there anything secret in this text? Is it as if Ken Jones says, well, and I don't mean to be facetious, but you'll remember this. Is it that the Lord is going to blow a secret dog whistle and only the Christians are going to see and hear and be part of this? I don't think so. But see, it's important that we have a proper understanding. More on that in a while. But I think this is in chronological order. And there's nothing hitting about this. There's nothing secret. Now, the trumpet of God. Trumpets have a lot of significance in both the Old and the New Testament. But for our text, in the eschatology of the New Testament, the trumpets are significant in three places. Let me give them to you. Hear the trumpet, three places speaking of end time events. Okay. Now, the last trump Paul will write about in 1 Corinthians 15.52, which seems to be clearly connected to the same trumpet of 1 Thessalonians 4.16 in this verse. Maybe I'm wrong. I, I don't think I am, but maybe I'm wrong. And the trumpet gathering at the end, we see a trumpet in Matthew 24.31. And this is often spoken of the last coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming. Right? Many look at uh, chapter 24 who are called partial preterists and believe a lot of the chapter was already fulfilled in AD 70. And a lot of it probably is. But this part here is the second coming. Now let's read what Matthew 24, 21 teaches what the coming of Christ will be like. And let's see how much it parallels this text. As the lightning, and we see lightning in, I believe, chapter 5 as well. That all the tribes on the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet. So there is some disparagement here, but it seems kind of similar. There are similarities in chapter 24, the second coming of Christ, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 16. Let me read them. For example, Christ will return from where? Heaven. Is he coming once, going back and then coming? I don't know. I don't think so. So we see it's coming from heaven, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Matthew 24, 30. Accompanied by angels and a trumpet of God, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, Matthew 24, 31. Believers will be gathered to Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Matthew 24, 31, and in addition, 40, 41. Christ is coming on the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17, Matthew 24, 30. I want to give you a quote from the Reformation Study Bible regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. Quote, 
At the coming of Christ, the church will experience a rapture. Being taken up in the air to meet Christ as He comes. The rapture will not be secret, but open and manifest. Its purpose will not be to whisk the elect away from the earth for a while until Christ returns for a second, second coming. The purpose of the rapture is to allow the saints to meet Jesus in the air as He returns, to be included in His entourage during His triumphal descent from heaven. His coming in this manner will be attended by the general resurrection, the final judgment, and the end of the world. End quote. That's from the Reformation Study Bible. So, many of us have believed this. I have believed this myself. This pre-tribulation secret rapture. Now, I just wanted to touch that. The text is not dealing about that, but we've had that imposed upon us. And I would argue with the elders, we do not think that is biblical. We do see some consequences to this teaching. And don't forget, this is a, a new teaching. This teaching is only about 200 or some odd years. Dispensationalism is not a historic orthodox position in the church. There are four eschatological, time for some water, positions. There are four positions. There is dispensationalism, there is historic premillennialism, there is amillennialism, and there is postmillennialism. That's a lot. The three of those are all orthodox. So, this view is new. And it was created by a man by the name of John Darby in the 1800s. Now, some will say, no, that's not the case. But it, 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 you can make a strong argument that that is the case. Nevertheless, it was not historic throughout. And if you picked up a lot of momentum in America, in the early 70s by a book called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. In addition, there was a Left Behind series that sold millions and made millions. And it was a fictional series. That's the category. So we have to understand that the other views, historic premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, unlike dispensationalism, are all orthodox. The other views suggest, the three views, that nothing in Scripture or theology of the early church should lead us to expect a secret rapture or escape, or escape from any sort of tribulation. I think that has given many an escapist mentality. I think many in the church have been misinformed. And I think it's created a false hope. Now let me qualify something. Let me be respectful and truthful. I have served alongside people and been in churches with people who believe this view of dispensationalism. And frankly, the truth. Some of the most godly people I've ever known some of the most people with the most integrity for Christ, and many, many who understand what it is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. I am not attacking them. I'm not attacking anyone. But as we have looked at Ephesians, we are to maintain unity. Right? So why should I bring this up? Well, for the reasons I told you. We think it's caused some detriment in the body of Christ over the past 100 or 200 years. As we have enumerated many times in Sunday school and from this pulpit, in essentials, we must have unity. 
The eschatology is a non-essential doctrine. I do believe it's consequential, but it's non-essential. Now, I am not trying to win a debate. Believe me, I'm not. But I do feel that we ought to be prepared. Be prepared for probably what lies ahead. To be informed and nevertheless to be hopeful. Because God will never leave us nor forsake us. Okay. Now. So, I want to look at this for a moment as well before we conclude on this doctrine. Many have felt over the years that we will escape some tribulation that will come upon the earth. And some of you right now may be a bit confused. You never expected to hear this. And you've always believed this. We're not going to be dealing with the tribulation. I want to read to you a scripture from Matthew 24, 29 to 30, which speaks of Christ's second coming. Historically, throughout church history, this has been the second coming of Christ. His glorious return. Let me read a few. Matthew 20, 29, 30. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. At the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Now, again, many believe this could be A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple. I take a more traditional approach than we do in the church. And make no mistake, if you believe in dispensationalism, you could be a member of this church. This is not a deal breaker. We just felt, I think it was time that we addressed this from our perspective, what we believe. Okay? Now, worthy of mention, in the first century and even beyond, what about the Christians who were under persecution? Under Nero. Do you know what it was like to live under Diocletian? You know, I was reading something uh, the other day, and I'm not trying to make light, but they experienced much more tribulation than we ever have here in the Western world, at least at that point. What about those in Iran? See, this dispensationalism, this secret rapture, is really a Western doctrine. Christians in the East, they don't acknowledge this. There are people in China who do not acknowledge this. I have friends in Scotland who are pastors. They don't acknowledge it as well. This is something for us to reconsider. I'm not here to say believe this or that. I do believe the text is clear. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians is about the second coming. Now, back to our regularly scheduled program. <laughs> what is the central point of this text? We look at verse 17. Sustain the primary focus, which is the resurrection of the dead, which occurs on that glorious day. Verse 17. Now, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And here, you ready? Here's the drum roll. You get it? And we shall always be with the Lord. The ultimate sense of hope. Who's the we? The Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, those that we've lost in this congregation, those that we'll lose, who will go home in the presence of the Lord. And they will be with the Lord forever. Christian, be informed. 
Be not ignorant of the reality of your hope. It's called the blessed hope. Paul calls it that in Titus 2.13. And so many of us have heard, when this day comes, when it's a wrap, when Jesus Christ comes back, and many of us may have a, a pen and pencil. You know, I'm going to ask Paul what he really meant about that doctrine. You know, I'm going to sit down with Jesus and say, Jesus, why did you, why did that happen here? And we can, I've heard the conversation, I'm going to sit down with the apostles, so on and so forth. But I think, this is just me, when we're in the presence of God and glorified, I think we'll be so enamored with the presence of our Lord, so overtaken with His majesty, that all of these questions the anxieties of this world will simply dissipate. I don't know. I don't know. We'll see. Leads us to our third point, concluding point. Having a proper understanding of death for a Christian and for all comes from the Word of God. God's Word is the source of truth. And we are to comfort one another with truth. With truth. Now, this word for comfort is the word parakaleo. And it can mean to console, to encourage, to strengthen by consolation or to comfort. And what is the basis of the hope? The encouragement of the hope is being raised with Christ and being with the Lord forever. Christian, that's the basis of hope. Now, we must understand that death is not easy. Death will not be easy. And many of us in the past two years have maybe thought twice about death. There's been much, not just misinformation, but there's been fear. There's been anxiety. But we ought to comfort one another with the word of truth. And the emotion of grief we may experience, and it could be very, very strong. But we must keep our eyes focused on the Word of God if this befalls us. Because the grief must be overtaken by the rejoicing and the hope that we have in Christ. Now there are many means and methods in this world for comfort. We have to comfort one another, right? How do you do that? Well, you can give a hug to someone, that's good. It really is, I mean... You can comfort one another using words and soft platitudes. Hallmark has made a fortune with that. Many can comfort themselves in the loss of someone, grief, with with food, with a bottle, with a needle, with pills. May God's truth and may God be our comfort always. No one has a greater source of comfort than the Christian. No one has a greater hope than the Christian. Therefore, comfort one another with this truth. We have truth and pertaining to death. We have truth pertaining to life. There is life here on earth for you. There is life after death for those in Christ. May we be strengthened with these words. Now having a good understanding as we opened up, a Christian should not be uninformed about death. Properly being informed should bring comfort, but it should also cause anxiety. 
excess fear of death for the Christian to slowly diminish. Again, it's a difficult topic. I understand that. Does God's Word inform you correctly? Encourage you correctly? Does it comfort you correctly on all matters of life and death? Yes, it does. So, how do we comfort one another? Well, certainly emails are good. Certainly texts are good. But as we looked at last week, what is better is to be here and to be one another. To comfort one another in all matters of life by implication and all matters of eternal life as well. Christian, do you realize that death has met its match? Christ conquered death. Christ swallowed death. And therefore, we will experience physical death. There's no question about that. But we certainly ought to not view death as those who have no hope. We certainly ought to not to fear death as those who have no hope. As the rest of mankind. Why? Because absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's not a hallmark card. That's the word of God. We can actually rejoice. Only the Christian. We can actually rejoice and have comfort. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 to 26. I want you to know this. That Christ is reigning now. Christ will reign. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. What is the last enemy? Death. It's the last enemy. We read Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Do you believe God's word? Do you? I think if you're in this church, I think the resounding answer would be yes. Now, we are to be informed about this very difficult topic. That we shall always be with the Lord. Jesus Christ will come back and no one will be excluded. As the initial problem in this church was they were, had anxiety and a misunderstanding. They were uninformed about what happened to those who died. We have just come to the realization that they will return. They are with the Lord. But the question I want to ask today is, what about those who currently have no hope? You know, Paul will go on to write in 2 Thessalonians 1-7. to As we looked at today, this coming speaks exclusively of those in Christ. But Paul will also speak, as the whole New Testament will speak, about an eternal judgment. Let me read to you what this will be like for those in Adam who have no hope. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7-10. The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified with His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. 
for our testimony you have believed. This is the destiny of those who have no hope. What does that say to us? Christian, we ought to be interceding. On a Wednesday night, we are praying for people that probably have no idea that anyone in the world is praying for them. We are praying for for back pains. We are praying for all sorts of things. We are praying for all sorts of needs. But primarily, we are praying for the salvation of those outside of the kingdom of God, those outside of Christ, who, as you see, have no hope. Does this motivate you to pray? A second thing is, does it motivate you to evangelize, praise God? That you're going out on Saturdays. Even if it's just giving a track. That seed, that track will bring forth what God purposes it to bring forth. So we ought to pray for those with no hope. As the people who have hope, we ought to evangelize. In closing, in addition, Christian, how... Should you respond to death until Christ comes back? Is there something we can do? We ought to live today, regardless of circumstances, with hope. Hope for today with a hope for tomorrow. Only you have that. Stay focused and stand in the Word. In the chaos of this world, and our emotions creep up, the fears, the anxieties... The misinformation given to us, we are lied to day after day by by this satanic system, the satanic age, the misinformation and the blatant lies. We must stand in the truth. We know He's coming back, but right now there is work for us to do and we ought to glorify the Lord. We must understand that we have to be properly informed with this truth and it must resonate consistently in our minds, in our hearts. And ultimately, when that day comes, we can warn, but we should have a radically different response. Our hope is for us because He lives. Our response should be different than those who die outside of the kingdom. Now, Once we are informed about this topic of death, I believe the second coming of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, what is our reaction? Joy. It's hope. Not what I feel. What the Word of God tells me. Be informed. Be hopeful according to God's Word. Let me close out with the words of our Savior, Jesus Christ. John 11, 25 and 26. Jesus' words, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord. And Father, we thank you for unity in essentials, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done throughout the world with so many sisters and brothers who may believe something different than we do. But, Father, we are not to have an escapist mentality. We are to be informed and hopeful about your second coming. We are to know about our eternal destiny. And we are to share 
about this great hope with those who currently have no hope. May we be a church who can properly articulate these truths by the Word of God, in the power of God, through the Spirit of God. Father God, we love you. May we honor you today and always. May we have hope. In Jesus' name, amen.